come this afternoon to the ninth chapter of Ezekiel. Please open your Bibles to Ezekiel 9. You find that on page 1,296. 1,296. conclusion of chapter 8 we read these words my eye will not spare nor will I have pity and though they cry in my ears with a loud voice I will not hear them and then we come to chapter 9 a great slaughter in Jerusalem then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice saying let those who have charge of the city draw near each with a deadly weapon in his hand and suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the rider's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. To the others, he said in my hearing, Go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eye spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women. But do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. Then he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. And they went out and killed in the city. So it was that while they were killing them, I was left alone, and I fell on my face and cried out and said, Ah, oh, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? And then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. And the land is full of bloodshed and the city full of perversity, for they say the Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. And as for me, I also, my eye will neither spare, nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own head. Just then, the man clothed with linen, who had the inkhorn at his side, reported back and said, I have done as you commanded me. So far, the reading of God's Word. He suddenly felt as though he was being pulled up into the sky by his hair. We saw in the eighth chapter of Ezekiel that while the prophet was meeting in his home in Babylon with the elders of Judah, the hand of the Lord came upon him and he felt as though the Lord was lifting him up by his hair between earth and heaven. Then the Spirit of God, in a visionary way, transported him to his beloved city of Jerusalem. 
Without leaving his home by the river Chebar in Babylon, the Lord enabled Ezekiel to be brought in visions to Jerusalem. He gave the prophet a guided tour of the temple. What Ezekiel saw in that guided tour was utterly repulsive. The Lord showed him four abominations. First, at the door of the north gate of the inner court, there stood an image of jealousy, probably an image of Asherah, the Canaanite goddess of love. It is called an image of jealousy because it provoked divine jealousy. Second, the Lord showed Ezekiel a secret chamber in the temple, a room where the walls were covered with pictures or carvings of all kinds of creatures. These animals, Egyptian gods, were worshipped and reverenced. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. In this secret chamber, there were 70 men of the leaders of the house of Israel, as well as Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan, the spiritual leaders of Israel, who should have known better, were worshipping these beasts. Third, At the door of the north gate, Ezekiel also saw women weeping for Tammuz, the god of plant life. They were going through the pagan fall custom of mourning the death of Tammuz. It was thought that Tammuz died in the fall and rose again in the spring. The Israelite women were participating in pagan rituals at the entrance to God's sacred sanctuary. And then fourth, In chapter 8, the Lord also showed Ezekiel 25 priests who stood between the porch and the altar with their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun. They should have been facing west toward God's sanctuary, but instead they stood with their backs to the Lord and their faces toward the sun in the east. What God showed Ezekiel was that every segment of society was involved in false worship. The common people worshiped the image of Asherah. The 70 elders worshiped the beasts of the earth. The women worshiped the God of plant life. And the priests worshiped the sun. The false gods of the nations were reverenced in God's sanctuary. And because of these abominations, the Lord said, They are driving me out of my own house driving me away from my dwelling place. The conclusion of chapter 8 is this. Therefore I also will act in wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Well, now this afternoon we see the outworking of this in chapter 9. I will not spare, and I will not show pity. Chapter 9 reveals a great slaughter in Jerusalem. I want to lead you through this chapter in four sections. First, the agents of judgment in verses 1 and 2. Second, the grace in the face of judgment, verses 3 and 4. Third, the severity of judgment in verses 5 through 7. And fourth, intercession in the midst of judgment in verses 8 through 11. We begin with the agents of judgment. Having shown Ezekiel through a vision the abominations of the temple, the Lord goes on to show the consequences of Judah's sin. 
The wicked will be slain in his fury. The first two verses show us the agents of judgment. Please have a look with me at verse 1. Verse 1. Then he, that is the Lord, called out in my hearing with a loud voice saying, let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. Verse 2. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gates. With a loud voice, the Lord summoned six executioners. Verse 2 tells us that each one of them carried a battle axe or a deadly shattering weapon, a weapon of destruction. These six men are prepared to kill. They are destroying warriors, ready to swing their weapons of destruction at the command of the Lord. They're prepared to carry out a bloody assignment. Although these six destroying warriors are described as men, they are most likely angels who were appointed by God for the destruction of Jerusalem. The agents of God's judgment are more than human. They are angelic warriors with supernatural power. The Bible teaches that angels are spiritual beings. They do not have flesh and bones. However, while angels are immaterial or spiritual beings, there are numerous occasions in Scripture where they made themselves visible in various forms. Usually when angels are seen, they have a man-like appearance and are sometimes even mistaken for men. For example, in Genesis 18, while Abraham was sitting in the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. In Genesis 19, two of them are identified as angels. They came in the appearance of men. Also in the New Testament, in Mark 16, 5, when the women came early in the morning to the tomb of Jesus, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, Scripture says they saw a young man clothed in a long robe sitting on the right side. Luke 24, verse 4 says, Behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. The angels, you see, look like ordinary men. This is also what we have here in this vision. Ezekiel saw six men who were, in fact, angelic warriors. They are messengers of wrath, soldiers of the heavenly army. They are under the command of their captain, the Lord of hosts. But then notice, congregation, that there's another angel among this company that is different from the other six. A seventh man whose task is distinguished from that of his companions. Verse 2b says, one man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. The seventh angel has no weapon. Instead, he is carrying a writing kit. We will consider the task of this seventh angel in a moment. Now, brothers and sisters, what do we see here? We see the invisible world involved in the events of history. Often, when we consider the events of history, we look at them only from a human perspective. We interpret battles, victories, and defeats based on the actions of people and nations. But these verses take us beyond the actions of people in history to the higher activity of God in history. 
The slaughter in Jerusalem in 586 was by the Babylonian army. Soldiers came in and brutally murdered men, women, and children. It was the Babylonian army that smote the inhabitants of the city. But we learn from this chapter that the defeat of Jerusalem was not merely due to Babylon's superior military strength. Rather, the defeat of Jerusalem was because of God's angelic warriors. You see, soldiers of the heavenly army were active in the defeat of Jerusalem. It was ultimately not Nebuchadnezzar who determined the destiny of Judah. It was the Lord himself. We need to keep this in mind also today. There is more to this world than what we see with the human eye. There is more involved in the events of this world than what is reported on the news. There is a whole invisible world that we cannot see, hear, or examine. There's a heavenly realm a heavenly army that the Lord uses to shape the course of history. Many unseen warriors through whom the Lord executes his judgments and accomplishes his purposes. The course of history is not determined by men, but by the Lord himself. Remember that as you listen to the daily news reports. So there were angels appointed by God for the destruction of Jerusalem. But then secondly, as we go on to verses 3 and 4, we see grace in the face of judgment. Grace in the face of judgment. Because of the defilement of the temple, the Lord could not remain there. He showed Ezekiel that he was preparing to leave the holy sanctuary. Go to verse 3. Verse 3. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. In the Old Testament, the Lord manifested his presence in the temple. He dwelt in the holy of holies between the cherubim above the Ark of the Covenant. That is where his glory was revealed. In verse 3, what did Ezekiel see? He saw God's glory moving from the cherubim to the threshold of the temple. In other words, the Lord was preparing to depart. We will see in the next chapter that the glory departs altogether. The glory departing from Jerusalem is God's favor departing from his people. There's nothing more horrible, congregation, than the departure of the loving, caring, merciful presence of God. It's Psalm 84. The psalmist expressed his longing for the house of God. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. Why did the psalmist long for God's house? Because that's where God was. That's where he revealed his presence. The presence of God was known in the temple as nowhere else. 
That's why David wrote in Psalm 27, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For believers in the Old Testament, the best place in all the world was the house of the Lord. It was the best place not because of its beauty and structure, not because of the gold and silver, because it, but because it was the special dwelling place of the Lord God. Their passionate longing for the house of God was because of their true delight in the Lord. For the faithful, the temple was a dim picture of heaven. In heaven, God's people will dwell in the presence of our Lord. We read in Revelation 21, verse 3, that when the apostle John saw a new heaven and a new earth, he heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. In the new creation, those who are redeemed through the cross, where Jesus himself endured the departure of the loving, caring, merciful presence of God. In the new creation, the redeemed will be able to dwell in his presence forever, to behold his glory and to rejoice in his love, uninterrupted fellowship, blessed fellowship with the living God. The Old Testament tabernacle and temple were pictures of that. Therefore, the glory departing from the temple was a most dreadful event. God's favor, love, mercy, and fellowship were being removed. And yet, in the midst of this, we see the grace of God extended to his elect. In verse 3, as Ezekiel saw the glory of God moving from the cherubim to the threshold of the temple, he heard the voice of the Lord calling to the man clothed in linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And what did the Lord say? Look please to verse 4. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. The angel clothed in linen was instructed to mark the foreheads of all believers who did not participate in the city's corruption. He was to mark those who lamented Judah's sin, those who were deeply grieved by the crimes committed against God. Those who received the mark were not to be slain by the six destroyers. They would escape the judgment. As terribly corrupt as the city was, there were still some who remained faithful to the God of Israel. Some who did not conform to the practices of the majority, who refused to be carried along by the flood of evil. They were like Lot in the midst of Sodom. 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 7 says that Lot was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked 
For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. As you know, Lot lived in an extremely wicked place. But every day again, he was wounded, grieved, and hurt by the sight of sin. What he saw disturbed him deeply. When Sodom was destroyed, Lot was spared, for he sighed over the abominations that were done within the city. Although Judah, at the time of Ezekiel, was filled with perversions, there were still some, like Lot, who were oppressed with the filthy conduct of the wicked. Their righteous soul was tormented from day to day. The Lord declared that they would not be destroyed. He would not slay the righteous with the wicked. Those who were marked by the angel would escape his fury. As in Egypt, just prior to the Exodus, those whose homes were marked with the blood of the Lamb escaped the angel of death. So also here, those who were marked by God were spared from the destroying angels. God in his kindness and grace delivered them. Congregation, doesn't this remind you of what will happen in the last day? In the final judgment, those who have the mark of God will be saved. And those who bear the mark of the beast will be condemned eternally. In Revelation 14, the Apostle John saw the Lamb, Jesus Christ, standing on Mount Zion. And with him were the faithful, 144,000, the elect of God. How are the elect of God marked? What is it that sets them apart from the wicked? Revelation 14, 1 says that on their foreheads is written the name of the Father and the name of Christ. They are saved from wrath because of that mark. Not one of God's elect are destroyed. By contrast, we read in Revelation 14, verse 9, that those who bear the mark of the beast on their forehead will drink the, of the wine of the wrath of God. They shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Congregation, the crucial distinction on the final day is whether you bear the mark of God on your forehead or the mark of the beast. Those who bear the mark of God will be saved. The rest will be cast into hell. How do you know this afternoon whether you bear the mark of salvation or the mark of damnation? Whether you bear the mark of Christ or the mark of the beast? Verse 4 of our text says that those who were marked for deliverance were those who sighed and cried over all the abominations of Jerusalem. They grieved over sin, over the transgression of God's law. Let me ask you, do you sigh and cry over the abominations that are found in North American churches today? 
Do you grieve over the abominations that are so prevalent in our society? Do you lament the wickedness of our nation? Do you feel like Lot in Sodom? Are you hurt by the filthy conduct of the wicked? Is your soul tormented from day to day by seeing and hearing lawless deeds? When you hear of moral scandals in the church, is your soul troubled? When you hear of godless legislation passed in our land, is your heart disturbed? When you see ungodly billboards, ungodly movie advertisements, when you hear ungodly songs, is your soul troubled? You see, brothers and sisters, those who are disturbed by sin and iniquity are those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. The fruit of salvation in Christ is hatred for sin and longing for righteousness. The fruit of salvation is the desire to see God's laws honored. Those who bear the mark of God are those who have repented of sin, turned to Christ for forgiveness, and hate sin with a righteous hatred. Those who have received the grace of God understand that it was because of human sin and wickedness that Christ went to the cross. Therefore, the redeemed are grieved by sin. Does that describe you? Does that describe you? Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so we see in verses 3 and 4 that in the midst of judgment, God's grace is still operative. He sends his angel to mark those who have not participated in the city's corruption. But then as we keep reading in verses 5 through 7, we are powerfully reminded that while God is gracious to those who fear him, his judgment is severe against those who do not. Point number three. While God is gracious to those who fear him, his judgment is severe against those who do not. In verse 5, the Lord said to the six destroying warriors, Go through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. Verse 6, Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark. The executioners were to have no pity. They had to kill men, women, and children. Yes, even children. Anyone who was not marked by the angel with the inkhorn had to be slain. God was going to exterminate a large portion of the population, male and female, young and old. But I want you to notice, brothers and sisters, where the slaughter begins. Where are these executioners supposed to start? In verse 6b, the Lord says what? Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. Judgment begins with the leaders of Jerusalem. 
It begins at the temple and moves outward toward the city. It begins with the nation's leaders who had failed so miserably in their task. By defiling the temple, the leaders had caused the people to err. By allowing images, they were setting before the people a false gospel, a counterfeit gospel. And as Paul said in Galatians chapter 1, those who preach any other gospel to you, let him be accursed. Those who pervert the gospel of Christ, let him be accursed. Anathema. The temple was a picture of Christ. By defiling it, the leaders were directing the sheep away from Jesus Christ, the great shepherd. Therefore, the judgment begins with the nation's leaders. We are reminded here that those who lead God's people will be severely judged if they take the focus away from Jesus Christ. James said in chapter 3 of his epistle, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. A position of leadership is a position of solemn responsibility. We will receive a stricter judgment. In both the Old and the New Testament, we can find illustrations of those in leadership who failed in their task. In the Old Testament, we can easily find prophets, priests, and kings who robbed the people of the gospel. In the New Testament, there are numerous warnings about false teachers who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Paul told the Ephesian elders that after his departure, savage wolves would come in among them, not sparing the flock. He told them that men would rise up from their midst speaking perverse things. The Apostle Peter said that such teachers bring on themselves swift destruction. Because they rob God's people of the gospel, the Lord executes judgment upon them. How vital it is, congregation, that the church is led by men who love Jesus Christ. Church leadership is more than administration. It is seeing to it that the pure, rich gospel of Christ is faithfully proclaimed. If the leadership does not exalt him, the church will perish. And those who are responsible for its demise will receive a stricter judgment. That was true in Ezekiel's day, and it remains so today. And so we read in verse 6, that the destroying angels began with the elders who were before the temple. The Lord said to the angels, verse 7, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go out they went out and killed in the city. Elders, priests, men, women, boys, and girls, none could escape, none could hide, except those who received the mark on their foreheads. The vision anticipated the butchering Babylonian army. But the vision also made it very clear that the extermination of the wicked was God's condemnation. The sinfulness of Judah had reached such a proportion that God's severe punishment was the only course left. Dear friends, 
if any of you, if any of you have not truly embraced the gospel of Christ, if you do not repent, you will one day discover that there is no escape, no place of refuge. But now fourthly, having considered the agents of judgment, grace in the face of judgment and the severity of judgment, we want to yet ponder for a moment intercession in the midst of judgment. Intercession in the midst of judgment. As Ezekiel saw the slaughter begin before his eyes, it was more than he could bear. He became overwhelmed with grief and began to think, what if everyone's slain? What if the total population is destroyed? Would that not bring an end to God's plan for Israel, an end to His covenant promises? Overcome by the thought, we read in verse 8b that Ezekiel fell on his face and cried out, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in pouring out your fury on Jerusalem? As a prophet of God, Ezekiel made intercession for his people. As Abraham interceded for the sake of Lot and his family in Sodom, and as Moses interceded for the people of Israel after they worshipped the golden calf, and as Jesus, the supreme intercessor, pleaded for his people, so Ezekiel interceded for the people of Judah. Falling on his face before the Lord, he prayed earnestly. He felt deeply for the souls of the people. He also felt deeply for the covenant promises of God. Brothers and sisters, isn't Ezekiel's intercessory prayer instructive, instructive for all of us? Do we have a burden for souls as Ezekiel did? And as Jesus did, do we cry out to God on behalf of his church as we consider the terrible punishment that is coming upon the apostate? Do we fall before him and plead his mercy? Do we intercede for those who are wayward, for those who are on the broad road that leads to hell? Do we pray for those who have departed from the word in either doctrine or life? Do we plead with God for blessing upon his church? Shouldn't each one of us have a burden for souls? Shouldn't every one of us seek his mercy and grace and have genuine concern for the church of Jesus Christ? May we be a people who pray for the prosperity of Zion. As the hymn writer said, For her my tears shall fall. For her my prayers ascend. To her my cares and toils be given till toils and cares shall end. Well, in verses 9 and 10, it seems as though Ezekiel's intercessory prayer is in vain. The Lord said to him, verse 9, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, 
And the land is full of bloodshed and the city full of perversity. For they say, the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. Verse 10. And as for me also, my eye will neither spare nor will I have pity, but I will recompense their deeds on their own head. It seems though the Lord is saying, Ezekiel, these people are hopeless. Their guilt cries out to me. They will not hear, will not repent, will not turn from their evil ways. And yet, in the last verse of this chapter, we do see a glimmer of hope. For just after the Lord spoke these words, the man clothed with linen, who had the inkhorn at his side, reported back and said, I have done as you commanded me. The people were not completely wiped out as Ezekiel had feared. The angel with the inkhorn did his job. He put God's mark upon the faithful and saved the remnant. But the Babylonians marched over the land. Many were slain, but those who received the mark of God escaped the judgment and were preserved. Brothers and sisters, let us keep in mind that while God is a righteous judge who severely punishes unrepentant sinners, he also loves his elect people in Christ with a love that is beyond our comprehension. We may be assured that as God saved a remnant of the days of Ezekiel, so he will also save his people in the last day. The fall of Judah in the 6th century B.C. is a foretaste of another judgment day, the final day. When Jesus returns, he will send forth his angels to separate the wheat from the tares. His angels will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. But the angels will gather the tares and cast them into the furnace of fire. Those possessing the mark of the Father and the Son on their foreheads will be saved. Those with the mark of the beast will be condemned. And so I ask you, congregation, what mark do you bear? If God's destroying Angels, listen, if God's destroying angels were sent through this building at this very moment, would you be slain or would you be saved? Destroyed or delivered? It all depends on your relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you acknowledged your sin before him, trusted him for salvation, and received his righteousness by faith? If he is your righteousness, then his name and the name of his Father is written on your forehead and you will never perish. What a comfort and joy for the child of God. However, if you remain in your sin, unrepentant, you will receive no pity. His wrath will be upon you forever. Then truly, what a privilege it is to be marked by the name 
of God. Marked by the Father, marked by the Son, marked for salvation. Is His mark upon you? Let us pray. Lord, our God, we read once again, we are humbled by your solemn judgments. Lord, as we think about the great slaughter in Jerusalem, we recognize, Lord, that we deserve that judgment as well. And we can only plead on the basis of the righteousness and blood of Jesus Christ. We pray that each one of us here, Lord, would be spared from your severe judgment on that final day because of him. May we be those who sigh and cry as we observe the state of our nation and the state of churches throughout North America and the state of our world. May we be those who, knowing the grace of Christ, sigh and cry over the abominations that we witness and hear of each and every day. Lord, we pray that you would come to us in your kindness and mercy. Make us spiritually sensitive men, women, and children. May we truly love you and love your gospel. And may we rest our hope for eternity the one who took our punishment and bore your wrath on Calvary's cross. Lord Jesus, we thank you for taking upon yourself what we deserved so that we may receive everlasting joy in your presence. Lord, may that eternal joy be for each and every one that is present here. We plead with you. We thank you for our great intercessor, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who continues in the most holy place to make intercession for us. It's in him that we have hope, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.